Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. What is the future of the data society and how will it impact your life? In the province of Xinjiang, China, citizens are tracked by artificial intelligence as they walk down the street or drive in a car. In America, algorithms make decisions about whether or not someone is approved for a loan, or hired for a job, or is released from prison. In Britain, Cambridge Analytica misused Facebook data from some 87 million people. All over the world, people are living more of their lives online, and that information can be gathered and analyzed and bought and sold. And with the recent advances in artificial intelligence, more of people's offline activities can be tracked as well. But there is an upside. AI can sift through massive amounts of data and spot patterns that humans would otherwise miss. Moreover, it can help us solve some of society's most pressing problems. So are these technological advances leading to a more open, progressive future? Or are we headed towards a dystopian one, where individual privacy is seen as a quaint relic? Used properly and effectively, these technologies very much inhibit dissent and discussion and change. Imagine if East Germany would have had the same technology China has now, I think at least the system would have survived much longer. Unfortunately, because of the difficulty in accessing the data, many researchers turn to other problems, perhaps not related to health data, and that's unfortunate. I'm Kenneth Kukier, The Economist Senior Editor, and over the course of this podcast, we'll be joined by leading thinkers from the fields of artificial intelligence and big data, as well as privacy and security, as we search for answers to these questions. We'll look at the future of these technologies in light of our new Open Future initiative, which champions the cause of classical liberal values and policies in the 21st century. But first, we go to Xinjiang, China, to get a glimpse of life under a surveillance state. Xinjiang province is arguably the most heavily surveilled area in China. It is home to the Muslim Uyghur population, which China sees as a security threat. We spoke to John Parker, our Beijing bureau chief on the line, shortly after he returned from reporting in the province. So, John, tell us about your recent trip. What's been happening there? The Chinese have the most extensive, intrusive policing system I've ever seen. In Hotan, which is a city in the south, I would say every 200 meters or so, there's high-tech cameras right across the road taking photographs not only of number plate, the number, but the face of the driver to link up with his or her ID card and they check that the ID card matches the number plate because only the registered driver may drive that that particular car. I can't lend you a car to drive. The other thing they do, there are checkpoints everywhere and 
many of these checkpoints have iris recognition systems, like a fingerprint for your eye. It's more accurate than face recognition. They also fingerprint you, like when you enter a country at the airport. Well, they have this at every street corner. Everyone with a mobile phone is required to have a piece of spyware installed in it. At these checkpoints, the Uyghur have to turn on their, their mobile phones, put in the password, and then give the working phone to the police. The police then turn it on, and it uses the spyware to download all the information that they want on that phone. That sounds extraordinary. Why is the Chinese government doing this? Because they're afraid of terrorism and separatism among the Uyghur. The Uyghur are Central Asians, they're Muslims, and they are sort of basically from a completely different culture and world from the Chinese. There are probably at least half a million Uyghur locked up in secret camps. There's no legal process. They're just locked up at the pleasure of the security services. So could the type of surveillance that is being conducted in the province also be used elsewhere in China? There's a lot of concern that the surveillance state in Xinjiang is a dry run for a nationwide surveillance. I mean, they're doing all this stuff in every part of China. The Chinese in many cities are required to provide sort of DNA samples and other kinds of biometric information. It's not just in Xinjiang. I would say, however, that there are not 10 million Muslims living in any other province. There's not a history of being a separate state. Xinjiang might well be a test the main test is getting all the systems to work together. You've got multiple systems, the traffic cameras, the biometric information from checkpoints, the AI. Getting all that to work together is sort of a critical part of it. And I do think that they will be definitely learning lessons from Xinjiang. John, thank you. To learn more about how extensively the government monitors and tracks its citizens, we spoke to Bruce Schneier. He's one of the world's foremost experts in cryptography, and he's the author of a slew of books, including Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. Bruce, welcome. Thanks for having me. How is surveillance taking shape in China? Well, in China, there isn't really this wall between government and corporation. Surveillance in China is much more political. It has to do with free speech and political ideas married with a censorship regime. And China has the goal to surveil all of its citizens pretty much all of the time. And the technology allows that. So what are China's surveillance capabilities? China uses the internet really just like Facebook does. But the difference is that Chinese companies are much more beholden to the Chinese government than Facebook is to the U.S. government. So China builds its own Facebook and its own SMS and chat applications. And then they monitor that. They are talking about giving people individual scores based on their behavior online. And then that score follows them through life and affects whether they can get a job or buy property or, or do other things. What scares you most about China's surveillance regime? 
because it goes far beyond just tracking people online. It's tracking people offline. And to be fair, the uh, United States surveillance regime also tracks people offline. Facial recognition technologies are becoming more advanced. We see them used in the United States uh, in airports and sports stadiums. Cameras continuously take pictures of people. And then that those photos are compared with databases of tagged photos, which Google and Facebook and many companies have, in order to identify people. And that's used in the United States in law enforcement contexts. It's used in countries like China for social control. What scares me most about what China is doing is the political purpose, that it might be an actual effective surveillance and censorship and propaganda platform, that all of these very imperfect technologies that we've seen over the centuries might be perfected because of the way the internet works, very much inhibit political discourse and social change and any marches towards democracy and liberty, that this might be an end game. Now, I think I'm being overly melodramatic here. That's not going to be an end game, just like I think in the United States, we will figure out privacy. But in the near term, used properly and effectively, these technologies very much inhibit dissent and discussion and change. Do you think that what happens in China stays in China? Or do you think that what happens in China could be a canary in the coal mine, that it could actually spread elsewhere as well? China is already exporting its technology and know-how to other authoritarian countries. So there is definitely a, a creep that these technologies flow downhill and they arrive for different purposes. But of course, purposes can change. Right? The phrase uh, Edward Snowden used was turnkey tyranny that we can build the technologies for surveillance and censorship for purely benign corporate reasons. But it takes very quickly, they can change and we use them for political reasons. Thanks, Bruce. So how did China develop such extensive surveillance capabilities? To find out, we were joined in the studio by Ludwig Siegler, The Economist's technology editor. Ludwig, so how did China get so good at surveillance? China, and that may surprise many of our listeners, is actually leading or leading in some parts of AI, artificial intelligence. And that is because China has a lot of data. And why does it have a lot of data? It has a lot of people, 1.4, 1.5 billion people, of whom half are online or have a mobile phone. They generate tons of data. I mean, I think we've called China the Saudi Arabia of data. One example is cash has basically disappeared in China's big cities because they use services like WeChat Pay and Alibaba Pay or Alipay. These companies then can use that data to come up with AI services on their smartphones. That's not just the case with, with online services. Facial recognition, China is very strong, uh, partially because or mainly because the government has a big database of pictures. When you turn 16 in China, you have to get a national ID card, and that database is, is made available to startups. So you have companies like SenseTime or MegV, and they are really good at recognizing your face. This sounds like it's laying the infrastructure for a surveillance state, and it sounds very troubling. Yes, that is, at least for me, is, is the question. I mean, I grew up in Germany when the wall was still up. And so on the other side of the wall was the Stasi. And in the end, the Stasi was, the job was to collect data, to 
almost be a replacement for elections, collect data about what people thought, all those things. And in the end, uh, the country failed, the political system failed because the Stasi was so costly. So imagine if East Germany would have had the same technology China has now, I think at least the system would have survived much longer. And so the question here is, is something like a digital dictatorship possible? I mean, can you run a country where rather than having elections uh, regularly kind of to signal to politicians what they should do, how they should act. You'd have kind of services like uh, WeChat and Sina Weibo that allow the government to kind of sense what, what's wrong, what they have to change, where they have to intervene. The question is, is does AI, do smartphones, does all of that big data make a di- digital dictatorship possible? But one asks, is that a utopia or is that a dystopia? Because, of course, we want government to be responsive to citizens' needs. Yes, but democracy is based on the idea that you, as a citizen, you have quite autonomous. You vote, you, you make your consumer choices, all that. If you live in a, in a situation where basically the, the government knows more about you, not only knows more about you, but can use that information to manipulate you, to, to nudge society in a certain uh, direction, I'm not sure I would like to live in that society. Do you think that China's surveillance state standards could become a global standard and might find itself going elsewhere too. Yeah, that, that is the issue. I think the, the way, I mean, there's this talk about a tech cold war. Uh, you, you could imagine a situation where you basically have two techno systems or two ecosystems follow different rules and the Chinese one plus aligned states use that technology, that approach, uh, and perhaps the Western one more or less because it's not that clear. I mean, we, we have the NSA, we have the intelligence services, but the mainly, perhaps it should put it differently, uh, kind of a techno system where technology is mostly used to control people. And another one where technology is, is at least mostly used to empower people. Thanks, Ludwig. While the levels of state surveillance in China may seem extreme, there is a form of surveillance in the West that many people know of but don't really think about. A business model that is built entirely on adverts bought because of Facebook's control over our posts. This is an information war, he says. Social media is the battleground and you are the target. It happens whenever people click like on Facebook, shop online, or even just carry their mobile phones. And it is undertaken by businesses such as Facebook and Google or your mobile phone carrier, along with data brokers which track every bit of information that can be gleaned about you, both online and offline. The way that many people first became aware of how much data was being gathered about them online was when the Cambridge Analytica scandal made headlines this winter. An app developer had scraped data from some 87 million Facebook users. That data was then used by Cambridge Analytica to tailor advertisements to individuals to influence the 2016 presidential election. It weighs on me that I played a pivotal role in setting up a company that I think has done a lot of harm to the democratic process in a lot of countries. But there's a lot of content flowing through the systems and a lot of reports. And unfortunately, we don't always get these things right when people report to us. From testimony released yesterday, we know that Facebook will admit that it made mistakes, that it didn't take a broad enough view of its responsibility and prevent its tools from being used in ways that it says it did not intend. We return to Bruce Schneier to talk about how much data is being gathered and what is being done with it. Let's take a look at the scale of the issue. What is it that the data brokers and Facebook and Google and others know about people when they're online? 
So there are two ways to answer this question. One is we have no idea because they won't tell us. And the other is everything because they collect everything and data is so easy to collect. So you have to assume that everything you do on a computer produces data. And because it is so cheap to save data, these companies save it. So we're learning about Facebook, that they save every post, every photo, everything you do, and then things you do and then delete. If you half type a post and delete it, they save it. Google saves everything you type. Uh, data brokers collect whatever they can, whether it's data from cameras that recognize faces or license plate cameras or transactions from your credit card or things you're doing on your phone. Pretty much everything you do creates data and that data is pretty much being saved by somebody and it's bought and sold without your knowledge and consent. And then aside from that, we know very little. This is a very opaque industry. We don't even know how many data brokers there are in the United States, between 2,500 and 4,000 is the number we tend to quote. And we don't know any more than that. They're companies you've never heard of. You never heard of Cambridge Analytica. You know, maybe you heard of Equifax, but you didn't consent to put your data in their database. They collected it and they would buy it and sell it and use it and you have no control over it. So it's a surprisingly hard question to answer. But at a first approximation, assume it's everything. Okay. So data brokers, we don't know much about them. We don't even know their actual numbers. Tell me generally, these data brokers, why is it that they operate under veil? How, how is that possible? Well, they don't operate under veil to their customers, right? Their customers know who they are and what they sell. And if, if you want to become one of the customers, you can go on to some, some of their websites and you can learn their product offerings. But we, you and I, are not their customers. We are their product. So we don't know about them because they don't advertise to us. There's no law requiring them to disclose what information they have on us. I mean, right now, I mean, Facebook's getting so much press because of their data practices. Every one of those data brokers is breathing a sigh of relief. That is not them in the news. So how is the data being used to profile people and to manipulate people? Can you talk a little bit about the technology behind it? So this is pretty shadowy, but it's basically big data correlations. So for example, Facebook can figure out your sexual affiliation based on who your friends are and the things you like. And they do this by putting all the data into a big pot and figuring out what correlates. There's an error rate there that's not perfect. That in a microcosm is how this all works. The data is used to figure out your interests, and then that, that is purchased by companies who want to access you because of that, maybe because of your age or your skin condition or your job status. And I think what we're seeing is that while we know our data is being collected, I think people are less knowledgeable about how the data is being correlated, that Facebook can figure out your political affiliation, your sexual preferences, whether you're depressed or not from what you do. And I think that's sort of a, a level more creepy and that people are less aware about it. But is there any benefit to what they're doing? How would they defend their practices beyond just simply the fact that they're making money? There are times we actually like targeting. When I go on Amazon, I actually like the fact that I see lists of books that I might want to buy based on books I bought. That is a valuable service and I buy books because of that. 
People tend to like their data being collected when it improves the service within the system the data is being collected. People tend to object when the data is bought and sold by third parties. What the industry will say is we're targeting. We're giving users a more valuable experience by making sure they see ads they want to see and not ads they don't. And that's true, but it comes at a price. And the question for society to ask is, is it a price we're willing to pay? Because the other half of this, when we're talking about surveillance, the other business model of the internet is, is persuasion, manipulation. The whole point of this is to get people to buy things they might not otherwise want or, or vote for somebody they might not otherwise vote for. That, that persuasion is the goal. And do we want to be persuaded in this manner? And it's an important question to ask. And right now, we're talking about surveillance in the, in the corporate sphere. And it's surveillance capitalism is designed to, to sell you things. It's not designed to inhibit political discourse. But it's just the same technology, which is in some ways what we saw with Russian interference with the election and Cambridge Analytica. Right? These are tools that are properly used to sell automobiles being improperly used to sell candidates. In light of all the liberties that corporations have taken gathering personal data online, it may seem sensible to restrict access to that data. But what if all that data being gathered was used for something very important, like saving your life? Tackling climate change, making our cities more efficient, ending disease. Clostridium difficile is a bacteria that leads to infections in hospital settings and which can be deadly. Patients are often infected with it after they've taken a course of antibiotics. To have one infection and then go in thinking, well, that'll be treated, I'll be better, and to actually catch something else, which potentially could have killed me, is it's very scary. It certainly would put me off going into hospital again, if I can avoid it. It won't come as much of a surprise to Graziella Kontakowski. After her grandmother died with C. diff, Graziella was so shocked, she set up a support group with a website full of horrific stories. I knew it was a problem, but I didn't know quite how bad. Um, some horrendous cases, absolutely horrendous. What we're suggesting is to sharpen the tools in the toolbox and improve diagnosis of this important condition to when we have a positive test, to do a second test to confirm that and make sure that when we say someone has seed, if they really do. Jenna Weens is an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Michigan. She's been working on developing new techniques for identifying patients at risk of getting infected with deadly Colostridium difficile bacteria while they're in the hospital. So we focused on hospital-acquired infections with Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, which is a type of bacteria that takes over the gut when healthy bacteria or normal flora get wiped out. Typically, say, when a patient is taking antibiotics during their hospitalization. So other researchers have looked at this problem of predicting which patients are at greatest risk, but their models are based on a handful of variables, typically a dozen or fewer known risk factors like the receipt of antibiotics. In contrast, our work focuses on thousands of variables. 
based on these data, we were able to apply machine learning techniques to identify patterns in the data. Most interestingly, we were able to identify patients at greatest risk five days in advance of when clinicians were starting to suspect that the patient might have an infection. But Jenna's work hasn't made it out of the lab and into hospitals as a standard part of care. And one of the obstacles is getting access to patient records. They are regulated by a U.S. law abbreviated as HIPAA, and it restricts how medical records are shared. But it is so onerous that it creates a culture of non-use. We've yet to deploy the model on live data. We extracted the data from previous years. And just getting the data wasn't an easy task. Um, getting the data, uh, live stream of the data, will be more challenging. These are very sensitive patient data. Um, this is research involving human subjects. Uh, most research studies that involve human subjects must go through um, ethics or institutional review board. And then data extraction itself isn't always straightforward. For our study, we used what's referred to as a limited data set. So we have things like dates, but we don't have direct patient identifiers. In Jenna's case, privacy law has been making it more difficult for her to progress with her research. It's certainly slowing things down. As researchers, it impairs our ability to rapidly cycle. And unfortunately, because of the difficulty in accessing the data, many researchers turn to other problems perhaps not related to health data, and that's unfortunate. This difficulty has also meant that other researchers who might have gone into the area of healthcare turn instead to other fields of study, such as ad targeting. So if I have a machine learning algorithm that I think will work well, I can wait weeks or months to test it out on patient data, or I can download a publicly available image data set and try it out on that. It is something that could result in fewer people working in an area that is critical to human well-being. I, I think that we need more people working in this space, and the more we streamline the process or access to data, the more we'll encourage researchers or facilitate this type of work. And I know that at Michigan, um, we're working on precisely that, um, streamlining the process of accessing patient data for research purposes, still in a secure way, but in a way that we provide the necessary tools and resources um, needed for, for scientific advancement in, in healthcare. So how do we balance the need for privacy with the interest in the access for data? In Europe, regulators are attempting to do that with the implementation of the GDPR. It is a thick set of rules that goes into effect on May 25th that governs how data can be used and in fact is highly restrictive. Proponents say it's the gold standard for privacy around the world. Critics say it is way too prescriptive and it's going to actually hobble innovation. To find out more, we return to Ludwig. Now, your reporting has done a lot to unpack the idea that data is the new oil and that it is a new economic resource. How do you see balancing the benefits that data brings us with these downsides and these harms? That is the main question, and I think we're, we're negotiating that now. The Facebook case and the Cambridge Analytica is, is part of that. That's the main challenge. Yes, I, I believe uh, you as an individual should have control over your data. So, I mean, the, the case right now in, in Europe, a new 
very comprehensive data protection law will will come into force uh, on May 25th, which kind of tries to change the balance of power between companies that collect data and individuals. Tell me more about the European legislation, because, of course, two decades ago, in 1995, Europe came up with a robust privacy law, and this makes it even tougher. Why is Europe being so strong about data, and what are the features of the law that are relevant? What the GDPR does is uh, give European privacy regulation some teeth. In Europe, the rule was always that you owned your own data, basically. But that's what's kind of always a dream. Actually, never happened. So there was a privacy directive they passed in '95, and so the the GDPR is now an attempt to really enforce that. Um, specified what can you do with your data? How can data subjects, meaning individuals, control their personal data? How can they access it? What happens in case of data breaches? So in, in that case, for example, the companies have to alert authorities within 72 hours. If companies violate the provisions of the law, fines are up to kind of 4% of global revenues or 20 million, whatever is higher, I think. Do you think it's going to work or do you think it's going to be so complex that it's actually going to hobble European companies? I think in terms of uh, what it's trying to achieve, that to put consumers, individuals more in control over their data, it's quite useful. I think that's a very laudable goal. But will it fail? That's a different question. I mean, it is certainly a very complex law. It's trying to do many, too many things. It's, it's out there. It has to be interpreted. It has to be Im- implemented. I mean, I recently did a piece and talked to a lot of companies about their experiences with becoming GDPR ready, as, as they called. And they actually said, yes, it's a burden, but it's helped us to put our data house in order. We just know better now what personal data we have, what we can get rid of, uh, how we have to treat it. That said, it really depends on how it will be implemented because it has what some privacy advocates call loopholes. To your point of will it hobble companies, that, of course, is true to some extent. But the question is, if you have an industry people don't trust, they won't give the data you need to come up with good services. So you could end up in a situation where consumers just uh, shut Facebook off. And that doesn't help you either. So it's always a fine line. And it seems to me that we had a situation where companies, especially Facebook, but also others, could do whatever they wanted with the data. Apparently, that doesn't work, as we have seen. Do you feel that the privacy movement is evolving like the environmental movement in which in the 60s and the 70s and earlier, of course, there was just no real appreciation for these externalities of pollution? to economic growth, and now we're understanding the ec- externality to the online economy. Yes, I think that's that's a pretty good analogy. It will happen a bit differently, but I mean, yes, in the same way we had kind of Chernobyl or other environmental catastrophes led to more of a kind of an environmental or green conscience, I think you will see the same thing with data. And as that happens, people will demand more control over their data. They may, may even demand uh, to get paid for their data. That's not clear yet, but that may may happen. Are you seeing that already in miniature? There is people now using certain startups. I mean, there's startups that offer a service. You give them the data, they sell it on in, in a controlled way, and you get part of those, those proceeds. So what is the future of the data society? Well, no one would think that their privacy is protected well today, even though we have rules, and even though those rules are being strengthened, it's not certain that privacy is being better regulated. Something's being regulated. The data's being regulated. Maybe the privacy isn't. 
What's clear is that the data, when it's accessed, can bring huge benefits to society, but it needs to be used. And society needs to find a way to balance that interest from using the data with the interest in preserving privacy, protecting something intimate that people find precious, and to make sure that that data can't be used against people either. At the same time as society has this debate, and it is a classical debate over the open society and what it means to be a citizen in it, the technology is changing. It's changing all the time, and it's challenging the very laws and regulations that we're creating. We need to find the balance. Next week, we're going to look at not the data society, but the algorithmic society, what we do with all of this information, and how new tools that we've created in artificial intelligence to analyze the information itself poses new difficulties. Join us. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.